Well, one of my favorite um, movies and one of my favorite books, actually the first book I ever read, was a book by J.R.R. Tolkien, and it's called The Hobbit. Um, and then the movie came out a few years ago, 2012, 13, 14. They did, th- I don't know how they squeezed three movies from one book, but they did, they tried. And I loved it. And as I think about the mission that God has called us to be on together, and I think about how Christians view evangelism and disciple-making. And those two things I'm going to use today, just to let you know my dictionary, they're synonymous. Doing evangelism and making disciples are both synonymous terms. They mean the same thing in the Bible, even though we have a distorted view of them at times. In fact, I think many Christians, they're so afraid of that word. When you talk about evangelism, they have all these things in their mind floating around. So we're going to go grab signs, and we're going to accost the city, we're going to go knocking door to door, we're going to have this awkward conversation with a stranger we've never met. That's what a lot of people think evangelism means, and sometimes certainly there's a place for some of those things. I have opinions on those things when you try to square them with scripture, and we'll talk about that too at some point. Um, But for the most part, people are scared. And when I read that book, The Hobbit, and when I saw the movie, it was perfectly... Uh, encapsulated because can I can I pull the slide up whenever Gandalf the wizard comes to the Shire the little village where uh, Bilbo Baggins the hobbit lived he was a hobbit he lived in a hole in the ground he didn't like strangers he didn't like entertaining guests he'd never met and he certainly did not like adventures you guys remember this and Gandalf came and he knocked on his door and he said I'm looking for somebody to join me in an adventure And I think that Bilbo's reaction to that word adventure could parallel some Christian's uh, reaction to the word evangelism and disciple-making. He said something like this, an adventure? Oh no. Nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things make you late for dinner. That's what he said about adventures. And that's how we think about evangelism. It's nasty, it's uncomfortable, and it'll make me late for dinner. It will interrupt my life. I'll have to rearrange everything in my life in order to go on this adventure. But if you remember when that little self-centered hobbit finally got out of his hole and joined Gandalf and a group of 13 obnoxious little dwarves, they changed the world, didn't they? It was a life-changing, life-shaping mission. But listen, you don't have to join an obnoxious group of dwarves and you don't have to go through the murky forests and you don't have to climb up the lonely mountain or a steal back some gold from a deadly dragon. In fact, all of those things have been done already on your behalf and on my behalf by Jesus. Jesus is the one who ultimately destroyed the serpent, right? The dragon. All we have to do, our adventure, is to go and tell everybody that it's been done, it's been paid in full, and that the war is over, and that God offers peace in Christ. But most people don't view evangelism Um, That way, I don't even think they view the message as good news. They think they go around and they have really bad news to tell everybody. And of course, there's some bad news contained in the preface of the gospel, but the gospel itself is a declaration that's filled with hope. That's why the Bible says, Beautiful are the feet of those who broadcast and publish good news. Martin Luther said this. He said, It wouldn't matter if Jesus died a thousand times if nobody ever hears about it. That's true, isn't it? Another man added this. It's only good news if it gets there in time. It's true about the gospel, isn't it? And listen, I just want to share my heart a little bit this morning. When I look out and when I see all the people that come to Grace Life, you guys are some of the most faithful bunch of people I've ever met in my life. You serve without complaining. You're here early. You stay late. You're consistent. You give. Now, as the pastor, I don't know who gives what and how much. And I don't care to tell you that. Some pastors would want you to think that they know that 
so, so that will guilt you into giving. I don't have access to any of that information, and I don't want it. But I know this. I know our people give, and they give sacrificially, and they give faithfully, and I'm thankful for that. That allows me to focus on shepherding you, studying God's Word, and engaging our city at a level that I couldn't um, if I had to do bivocational work, which I would be fine to do. But I want you to know, when I look out and see you, Grace Lifers, I see an army. I really see an army. And I see that God, I believe, this year is seeking even more than he has in the past to mobilize us and send us out. Because, listen, beloved, we cannot forget the mission for which God has saved us and, and left us here and has equipped us to be on. We cannot forget that. And this is the year I really want us to rally around that mission. That's why I'm doing this series on what it means to live on mission. Because... What you do have to do to enter into this adventure of evangelism is order your life and view your life in such a way that you see yourself as an evangelist. And that's what we're going to talk about. That's what this passage is really about. And the introduction here is a little bit long, so just bear with me. We're going to get to the scripture. There was a very alarming statistic that was floating around Britain for a while. And it alarmed American pastors because, as you know, whatever happens in European countries, there's a slight delay, but it happens here too. It's just a, a pretty well a good predictor of if it happens in Europe, it's going to happen here with few exceptions. So there was an alarming survey that, that uh, disturbed some pastors because it's, it's called the rise of the nuns. That sounds like a Star Wars sequel or something, doesn't it? <laughs> the nuns, people that check none on a, a, a survey, what religious affiliation do you have? None. I'm not Protestant. I'm not Catholic. I'm not a Mormon. I'm not a Jehovah's Witness. I'm not Islam. I'm not any of those things. No religious affiliation. Not necessarily atheist. They wouldn't say they're atheists. They would say they're spiritual. They're just not ascribing to the uh, state-organized religion or, or what have you. 70% of those people, and this is why it alarmed American pastors, because those 70% of the population of Britain said that they cannot envision themselves ever stepping foot in a church for any reason. For no reason at all would they ever find themselves in a church. Not for a funeral, not for a wedding. I know that sounds crazy to us, but for people that are like, why am I going to go to a church for a wedding? I don't, I'm not affiliated with that. Why would I go there? So they don't go if there's a wedding. They don't go if there's a funeral. They don't go if they're lonely. They don't go if they're depressed. They don't go if there's a national tragedy like 9-11 ushered in. Those days are gone. Those days are done. They're not coming to the church. So what are we left with if we're going to be faithful to this charge that God gave us? They're not going to come to us. Where does that leave us? We got to go to them, right? But I'm telling you right now that a lot of churches, not only are they reluctant to, to receive the way that our culture is now, but they're resistant to it. It's, it's almost as if they're oblivious. And I, I'll say it this way. I'll say it this way. A lot of people believe in what I've, I've you know, a, a, a lot of pastors call an attractional model. An attractional model, and it's this. If you build it, they will come. So I'm going to design this Sunday gathering in such a way that it's going to attract unbelievers. It's going to be over the top. We're going to serve coffee. Now, bear with me. I'm not saying these things are wrong. We do some of these things, and we should, because everything you do ought to be done to the glory of God, and it ought to be done with excellence. But they said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to design this service to attract people from the world to come in. So we're going to have a coffee kiosk. We're going to have a kick, a kicking band, a rocking band. Uh, we're going to have the most comfy seats in the house. The architecture is going to be state-of-the-art. The bathrooms are going to be clean. The parking lot's going to be incredible. We're going to have greeters out front. 
the, for everything from the worship songs to the content of the message to the appearance of the pastor. I'm not kidding you. All these things were talked about and strategized. It was all about the Sunday gathering. If you build it, they will come. Now, are those things wrong in and of themselves? No, they're not. We ought to have the best coffee in, in Deltona. Do we? haven't had it in a while. <laughs> you don't have to answer that. I think we do, okay? Especially when it's Joe and Marilyn providing the Kenya coffee. But uh, I think those things are good. Uh, and, and I think we ought to, to, we certainly ought to design our services in a way that's accommodating to guests, right? They ought to feel, uh, we ought to be hospitable. We ought to be warm and accommodating to, to the, the best of our ability. And the sermons that I preach, I try to make them intel- as intelligible as I can for any outsider that would come in here that's invited by you. So they can understand everything I'm saying from the the way I explain the Bible to the illustrations I use, all of those things, I, I keep those things in mind when I'm preparing a sermon. But listen, I want to tell you something. The days of the attractional model being um, successful, if you want to call it that, the way it was in the 90s after the church growth bergen um, blew up, those days are over, guys. They're over. People aren't looking uh, for, for churches to come and visit. People that are living in unbelief, they're just not. The attractional model is dead. Now, you know, in the Old Testament, we saw a little bit of that. Uh, do you remember God called Israel a special treasure nation of his to be a light on a hill, to be a city on a hill, to be a blessing? It goes all the way back to Genesis 12 when God saved Abraham and he said, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you a blessing to all the nations. And when he established Israel and put them in the promised land, he told them this, all the nations around you are going to look at you and they're going to say, what an amazing God you worship. What an incredible religion Judaism is. And we want what you have. How in the world did that happen? And I think the apex of that you see in the reign of King Solomon, who was the wealthiest and wisest king in the Old Testament. And it was said that the Queen of Sheba came from miles and miles and miles. She traveled all the way to Israel to visit Solomon because she had heard he was famous. His king, the kingdom of Israel was famous. And she came and she looked at his court. She looked at his administration. She looked at the kingdom and she's blown away. And she said something like this, behold, I heard about your fame and your power and about your God, but behold, the half had not been told me. And she was blown away and breathless, right? And, and to some extent, the church should still be like that. There should be an attraction to our church, but I don't think God intends for it to just be our gathering on Sunday right? And that's where the second model comes in. In fact, I think I have a slide to show you a contrast. Can you guys see that? Attractional model is on the left. If you build it, they will come. The whole world is looking for answers. And Christians, they know have the answers. And so if you invite them and your service is dab, they're going to come. They're going to come in and you can't keep them out. They're going to fill this place up. The missional model on the right, it doesn't say come and see. It says go and tell. And it says that God has mobilized us and he has equipped us and he has empowered us and he's given us this mission to go out there to the unbelievers and deeply engage them at a level that they understand with the gospel. That's the New Testament model and there's no, uh, there, there's no way for, mis- for us to misunderstand that because it's here just so clearly uh, written for us. And let me tell you the danger uh, in going back to the attractional model because here's what happened. That worked if you want to measure it by numerics, okay? A lot of people came, uh, but they didn't go. They came and saw, but they didn't go and tell. They came and saw, and they sat and waited, right? And they got really comfortable. 
And the churches became ingrown and people lost this sense of urgency, this sense that we're on mission and there's other people out there dying in their sins and they desperately need the message that we can tell them. Because here's what happens. Some of those churches, and again, I'm not against mega churches per se, but some of those churches went all out. I mean, it was like a Christian Disney world and you never had to leave the safety, like if you're a hobbit, you never had to leave the safety of the Shire. Everything you had was right there. They had a Christian business directory. If you wanted a haircut, no, n- no reason to get polluted by those dirty old unbelievers up there cutting hair and cussing and talking about worldly things. No, no, no. You can go down, the, uh, you know, you can go down to our, our cafe. There's a coffee cafe down here, the Christian cafe, and there's a Christian barber right there. And if your truck or car breaks down, you got the Christian mechanic over here. You, you guys know where that went. I mean, that's, that's what happened. It was like entire cities. There was a Christian zip code, and you never had to go back out uh, into the unbelieving ghetto, right? We created our own Christian ghetto, and we, and we were in a bubble, and we forgot what it was like to be in unbelief. We forgot how unbelievers think. We forgot how they talk. We forgot what kind of culture they're involved in. And man, there was this line where it was, we, we, it was us versus them, and we separated We wanted to get disinfected from unbelievers. That's what the attractional model, when misapplied, led to. We're still supposed to be attractional, but listen, the attraction should be our life. It should be our hope in Jesus. It should be the way that we face death. It should be the way that we handle criticism. It should be the way that we handle conflict at work. It should be that we're not materialistic and consumeristic uh, like unbelievers so often are. We're different. That should be the attraction, not just the way you design your service. So that's really what this text talks about. It talks about Christianity, if you want to call it a religion. It's not a come and see so much as the Sunday gathering. It's a come and see my life, certainly. But it's a go and tell. It's a go and tell. One person described it like this. um, If you view Christianity as a ship, so many people view it as a Christian uh, luxury cruise liner, right? It's got all these accommodations on there. Everybody's comfortable. And we are just uh, entertaining ourselves to death. And, you know, next round's on me. And they got everything on this cruise you would ever need. And and we're just in heaven, right? This person said, no, that's the wrong way to view it if you're viewing it as a boat. Instead, you should view it either as a battleship or maybe even more accurately would be, uh, and I wasn't in the Navy, so Mark, you'll have to correct me, an airline carrier. Am Am I saying that the right way? Aircraft carrier, thank you. Man, you guys are with it. <clears throat> Dumb pastor didn't know what he's talking about. So it's these large barges, right? And they, and they carried the airplanes that would take off with supplies and sometimes with, I guess, bombs if they were invading another country. But let's, let's use the, the supply scenario, okay? You're taking these supplies to soldiers that are on the front lines and you're making sure that we're able to invade the kingdom of darkness and make progress, right? That's a better and I think a more accurate and biblical way to view our mission, not as a cruise liner. Listen, the church, we are here to equip you to strengthen you, to train you up, to give you the supplies, the materials, the education you need to go out there and be effective. That's why we gather on Sunday morning. That's why we gather to edify, to be built up, to be trained, and we scatter to evangelize. So if you could say, do you have to pick an attractional model versus a missional model? Well, uh, if you view it the wrong way, yes, it's missional, but I think it's a both end. I think our lives should be attractional, in the same way that Israel was supposed to be but failed because they became just like all the other nations and Jesus had to come and do what Israel wouldn't do, right? Show the world what God is like because that's what God's called us to do. 
He's called us to do three things, really. Show the world what God is like um, and prove to them why it matters, right? Tell them what he's like, share with them what he did, and prove to them what it, you know, why it matters, that it does matter with our lives. So Jesus formed his church for a mission, and if we don't live on that mission, then the church is not a church. In fact, J.D. Greer said this. This is pretty edgy, but he said this. If a church has lost its sense of mission, in other words, if you've lost the sense of your entire life as one big mission to go and tell, then you're not really a church. You're just a bunch of Christians who are being disobedient, hang, hanging out together. I mean, man, I read that. And I'm like, man, I don't ever want Grace Life to be that. And I don't think it is. You guys have modeled this for me to view all of your life as a mission field. So I'm thankful for that. I'm really thankful for that. J.D. Greer said this. He said, in the Western church, I think we are at a crucial decision point. I love seeing big audiences gathered to hear the gospel, but if we want to reach the next generation, we are going to have to equip our people to reach them outside the church. Would you agree with that? I mean, God called us to be fishers of men. The last time I checked, unless it's one of those weird YouTube videos where the fish are jumping in the boat, most of the time the fish don't jump in the boat, do they? We're supposed to go out and fish for men and women and children with the gospel of Christ. We are fishers of men. Jesse James, the famous bank robber, was once asked, why do you rob banks? You know what he said? That's where the money's at. <laughs> why do we go out there? Why is that our mission? Because that's our audience. That's where unbelievers are. That's where they, they gather. And that's where God has called us to go. So I have one goal today, really. It's to encourage you. And to challenge you with this truth, you do not have to obtain a passport and buy a bus ticket and board a plane and cross the Atlantic Ocean to faithfully live on the mission that God entrusted you with and make an impact for the kingdom. You don't have to do those things. What you do have to do is to reorder your life in such a way um, that you, you know you're living on mission all the time. You do have to go outside your front door. <laughs> Okay? You've got to be like Bilbo. The first step is just outside your front door to get out of your hole, to get out of your comfort zone, to leave the confines of safety and familiarity and take risks for the kingdom. That's what we all have to do. We don't send some or even just the best on mission. We send all of us. One person said this. He said, the church doesn't send missionaries. The church is a missionary. So that's the introduction to this. This is a really familiar passage to a lot of people. It's one of the most popular, I guess, verses or familiar passages in the Bible because it's the Great Commission. But I also think it's one of the most misunderstood passages in the Bible. And I can't cover every single jot and tittle in, in, this, uh, in this passage today. So I'm going to do it like this because I think this is so misunderstood. I'm going to do some myth busting. You guys remember that show, Mythbusters? I used to love watching that show. I'm going to bust some myths I started to say bust a move. <laughs> I'm not going to bust a move up here, don't worry. I am going to bust three myths, though, by God's grace and with his help. And here's the first one. Disciple-making is an event. Disciple-making or evangelism is an event. A lot of people think that. A lot of people view their mission that way. That, one, the event is Sunday. We just talked about that. We do all of our disciple-making right here on Sunday mornings. If you think about that, Man, we're missing out on a lot, aren't we? Because how long are we here on Sunday mornings? We have to rent this facility, and it's expensive. Every hour it costs us. I'm not even going to tell you what it costs us. You just have to trust us. We're being good stewards of God's money. And this is the best we can do right now. We don't have a building, but it's pricey. And the school has been very kind to us. They've given us the best deal they can. We're here for two hours. 
So if you view the majority of disciple-making in the church as here on Sunday morning, then that's two hours out of the, somebody who's a mathematician tell me how many hours are in a week that you're not sleeping? A bunch, more than two, right? If your disciple-making primarily takes place on a Sunday morning, uh, number one, for most of the time, you're sitting there, Right? Nothing against that. I'm glad you're here. I want you. I want all those seats filled up. But if that's the majority of our disciple making, if we view if we view Sunday morning as our primary means of disciple making, then man, the rest of our life we're not being obedient to this, right? I grew up in a church um, that had um, visitation. That's what they called it. Maybe some of you know about that in the South. Visitation night. It was a Tuesday night, I think, um, and. The church, some of the, those gifted evangelists, those that had the gift of evangelism would show up and they'd go knocking door to door. And I remember thinking, why are we the only ones doing this? Where are all the other people? Why aren't they doing evangelism with us? That's the way evangelism was viewed. A faithful few people that had this extraordinary gift in the church would do it. Uh, and the rest of the people would be afraid and be ashamed and would be guilt-ridden. And some of the people that did go would judge those that didn't. But that's not what disciple-making and evangelism is. Look at this passage here. Look what it says. Verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Stop right there. Full stop. This is one of the most incredible statements in all of Scripture. And I think so often we're, we're so eager to get to the uh, command here to go and make disciples and baptize and teach, we miss this. Jesus is making an unqualified, uh, well, no, I shouldn't say unqualified. Um, he's making an incredible statement here, okay? And this is linked to the resurrection just happened. The very beginning of this chapter is the resurrection and now the, the marching orders for, for Christians. And they're connected. Because Jesus is the risen Lord of all creation, his sacrifice has been accepted by his Father. He's risen from the dead. He makes this declaration that's all-encompassing, and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. History is mine. The world is mine. I own all of this. I'm in charge. Think about that. Wrap your mind around that. He is saying the one who loves you and died for you controls all of history. That's what he's saying. It all belongs to me. It's a unique authority. It's a supreme authority. It's a global authority. And it means this. There is no place, no sphere, no person who is outside the claim that Jesus made there. No place, no person is outside that claim. So if God is calling you and I to be disciple makers, and, and we only view it as like this two or three hour scheduled thing that happens once or twice a week, we are missing out the claims that this promise makes. We're not cashing the entire check. Because if Jesus, what he's about to tell them is to go. He's telling them, go. Don't stay. Go. And the reason behind that is because all authority has been given to him. He, it belongs to him. He owns it. And you're saying, I'm not following here, Pastor. What's that got to do with evangelism not being an event? That means no matter where you go as his disciples, no matter where you go as his children, you are representing him and he is already there. Let me say it this way. Soccer, soccer practice, that's his. He owns that. That's his sphere. He's present. He has authority over every heart that is there, over every conversation that is there. Soccer field is his. Your cubicle at work, that's his. There is no boundary to his. There's no place where you can say, okay, this is where Jesus' authority stops and starts. We would never say it that way, but we live that way sometimes. 
You know, we talk about, man, there's these closed countries um, that yet you, you're not allowed to go into. There's no, not, not according to my Bible, there's no closed place. There's no closed person. God has called us to go everywhere, to all the world. But listen, it starts with our own neighborhood. Sometimes it's really interesting to me. We will go um, to a strange place and we will engage people with strange customs. We'll observe strange traditions and, and we'll share a strange message and then we'll come home and we won't do that here. <laughs> we won't even know the names of our unbelieving neighbors, some of us. I'm not indicting you, but I'm just my experience with Christianity, this is the case. People will get on a bus and drive halfway across America or get on a plane and cross the Atlantic to do what they would never do in their own town. And Jesus says the Great Commission starts here. We are his witnesses. It starts right here. All authority has been given to him. It all belongs to, to him, and therefore we have access to all of it. So listen, it's not an event. It's not an event at all. It is a lifestyle. I know that word has some baggage, but you should view evangelism as a lifestyle. It's your entire life. All you need to do is view your life as on mission at all times. You're always an ambassador. Always. And really, this, this verse, if you look at it carefully, there's one main verb in here, and it's make disciples. That's definitely the central message that Jesus is telling his disciples, and, and by extension us, is to, to make disciples. That's the goal, that's the mission, mission, that's the vision. But there's three participles. You know what a participle is? It's kind of like it modifies the main verb. And the, the, the participles here are go, teach, and baptize. The main verb is make disciples. So the mission is to make disciples, but check out the first participle. It's slammed in the very beginning of the sentence. That's why most translations read, go therefore. All authority has been given to Jesus, therefore go. And that word go, it's the participle going. It actually means as you are going. So Jesus is essentially saying, the whole world is mine, Every sphere of your life, I have authority over. I'm reigning. I'm on my throne. I'm in control. I am directing history. Therefore, this disciple-making thing, you are to do it as you are going. As you are going. As you are going where? To work. As you are going where? To school. As you are going where? To soccer practice. As you are going where? Shopping. All of your life is to be viewed on mission. It's not an event that you schedule for Sunday morning or for a visitation and as a matter of fact, I'd say those, that door-to-door -door knocking, those days are gone. I mean, the Mormons have hijacked some of that. And I don't open my door for strangers if they have white shirts and black ties on. I just don't. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't know who they are. We live in different times now. So those are the implications. The world is yours because the world is God's. And that means, listen, guys, there is no such thing as a mundane or ordinary moment or chance encounter. No such thing. All of your life is to be lived on mission. And I love what J.D. Greer says, and I'm going to put it up here as a slide. This is a great quote. Check this out. Whatever you do, do it well for the glory of God and do it somewhere strategic for the mission of God. Some of you have incredible gifts and, and, and amazing callings, and you should view those as strategic ways that God has equipped you to be on mission. I'll say it this way. Most of you have access to people I'll never talk to until they come in here. If they ever come in here, I will meet them, but hopefully I won't be their first encounter to Christianity. They will have already uh, been invested in as a disciple-making uh, opportunity by you. You know people at your job, I'll never meet them. I don't speak their language. I don't. I don't, I don't, I don't get 
you know, some of the cultures of the people that you uh, are in their sphere of influence. That's the way God has designed it. So whatever you do, do it well for the glory of God and do it somewhere strategic for the mission of God. But that somewhere strategic doesn't have to be Bangladesh or Romania or South America. It, it, it can be, and, and you know, God's authority is global too, and we need to be going to those places. But it can be, some, it can be in the next... Listen, God's authority extends to the house next door and the room right next to you where maybe an unbelieving family member is, right? All authority has been given to him. The whole world is his, all of it. No exceptions. So be strategic. View your life as strategic. Did you know this? This blew my mind when I read this. There are 40 miracles recorded in the gospel, excuse me, in the book of Acts. 40 miracles recorded in the book of Acts. And most of the time when there's a miracle, um, an apostle is performing the miracle and then a teaching time comes afterwards. Did you know that out of the 40 miracles recorded in the, in the book of Acts, 39 happen outside of church? Outside the walls of a church gathering? Did you know that? That's 97.5%. You say, so what? Big deal. Well, what's that mean? I think it means this. God wants to manifest His power beyond the walls of this church. Now, I've told you there's a special presence of the Holy Spirit of God when we gather together in corporate worship, and God does something special and powerful and unique here that He doesn't do out there. But at the same time, if you view just the, the book of Acts and look at that, what's that telling us? That God also wants to manifest His power outside in the world. Let me say it this way. If I were to ask you or you were to ask most Christians, try and remember a time where you really saw God's power at work. A lot of Christians that, that I've been friends with would mention a particular part of a message they heard in church or you know, when the, when the kick drum came in and, during the worship set and the, of, of, of uh, praise and worship. But so often we don't think of things outside of a, of a church gathering, a corporate gathering or a home group gathering as God manifesting his, his power. God does want to manifest his power in your life, even outside the walls of this church, as you're on mission, as you're going. As you are going, and you're encountering those places where God's authority has extended to. One person described this mission like this. So many people come to church, um, and they view the, the pastor as the quarterback, and maybe they're the rest of the players on the team. And we all huddle together, and the quarterback calls a play, and then everybody says, break. And we go back, and everybody else sits on the bench and watches the quarterback um, call that play again, and they talk about the play, and maybe they take notes about the play, and maybe they invite some of their best friends to come and, and watch that quarterback call those plays, but the play never gets ran, right? And that's a problem, because you're not going to win the game if you don't do that. It was J.D. Greer that came up with that illustration. I think it's really fitting, especially for bigger churches, where it's kind of an attractional model, and they all come, and they hear this message, but they forget that, man, they're the people that are on the team, and we want to put the ball in your hands, so it's not an event. It, is, it really is a lifestyle. And I want to really help you wrap your mind around this because there's a great example in the Old Testament of what this looks like for parents. Check this out. This is called the Shema. This would have been the most important verse for, for Jews growing up. They would have to memorize it, uh, recite it. And it's a great verse for parenting too. So check this out. He's talking about the commandments. And he says this, You shall teach them diligently to your children... 
And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So what in the world is he saying here? What's he saying? Well, um, when we view teaching the commandments to our children, we normally think of an event. Or it's worship time. It's time to sit down and talk about the Bible. And I have that in my house. And I hope that you do too if you have children. We need to. But look, it's really interesting the way that Moses, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this out. Teach them diligently to your children. And look at this. When you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. What's he saying there? It's all of life. All of life has these teachable moments. There's no such thing as a mundane or wasted moment. The only wasted moments are the ones that we don't seize and take advantage of. And I'm telling you right now, if that's true of parenting, it's certainly true of disciple making. Because God has put opportunities, strategic opportunities, all around us. And I think so often we miss it because we're not viewing all of our life as that mission. We're viewing it as just a segmented part of our life. Right? You guys follow me? Does this make sense? Tim Chester said this. Um, let's, let's put this slide up. This is a really, really helpful quote. J.D. Greer, actually, uh, he said this, The Great Commission is not an addition to your life, but but an essential component of every other part of it. And then Tim Chester, check this out. Evangelism is this. Man, this is one of the best definitions I've ever heard. Doing normal life with gospel intentionality. Doing normal life with gospel intentionality. Raising your children, going to work, going to school, going shopping, going to the grocery store with this gospel intentionality, meaning God has put me on a task today. I am on mission. All authority has been given to him. He owns, his, his fear of authority is at Publix. His fear of authority is at the dentist office. I was telling my wife this the other day. We, we used to talk about evangelism and say, well, you know, if you're in line at the grocery store and we would think, do you share the gospel, do you not? Most of the time when we, ha- when we hear that scenario, we're thinking about the person in line in front of us or the person in line behind us, aren't we? But do you know, I think maybe a better way, and it's certainly okay to do that sometimes when you have just cold encounters with somebody you've never met, you felt compared by, compelled by the Holy Spirit to share. But listen, wouldn't it make sense if you always shop at the same Publix like I do? And most of the people that work at Publix like their job, don't they, Zach? They, like, they actually like being there, and they stick around. And it's, sometimes it turns into career opportunities, and you see the same people over and over. And you see that person at the, at the checkout that's cashing you out, it's the same person. Um, so when we think of those scenarios, we tend, to, we tend to view them as just maybe chance encounters we have. I mean, I know there's no chance encounter. God's providence directs everything. But what if we viewed it as more, I'm going to be on strategic mission. I'm going to get to know that person that's that cashier or that person that, that offers you your sushi or the baker that works in the, in the cake department or in the deli. Those people work there all the time. Find out their name. Find out how you can pray for them. Get to know them. You know, that's, that's part of lifestyle evangelism. And you know what? I believe, I believe this. When you begin to pray, and you begin to be very strategic and intentional in cultivating relationships, God's going to open a door for you. He is going to open a door for you to be able to share your faith or share how you have a hope, you have a faith in Christ that helps you when you face what they're facing. It's happened so many times now. I don't know why I've ever doubted that that's the way that God works. Catherine Osdorf said this, Most pastors 
in my life have been more concerned about helping us serve inside the church than about discipling and equipping us to serve in the world. That's really interesting, man, to hear somebody read that. So what, is it, what does it mean um, to view all of your life as a mission? It means that you're deeply engaged. You're deeply engaged in whatever sphere of influence that God has put you in, but you're also utterly unattracted to the worldliness or the secularism that's there. That's what it really means. You're in the world, but you're not of the world, right? John MacArthur used to say it this way. He said, there's a difference uh, from the boat being in the water, which is what we are, and water being in the boat, which is what we're not supposed to be, right? So with being deeply engaged uh, with unbelievers in your life, but being utterly unattracted uh, to the sinful and base things that have enslaved them, that's what God has, has called us to. Now, I want to make sure that I get all my outline in here. Um, I believe when we, when we think about work, we, I'll just use work, vocational calling for an example. What are the three things that maybe God is calling us to, to do as we're going? As we're going, all authority. One is to show what God is like. One is to tell what God has done. And the other one is to prove why it matters. Because listen, if we're on our mission and we're showing the world that we're just as prejudiced, we're just as bitter, we're just as materialistic, we're just as consumeristic, we're just as angry and hostile when we lose our health or we lose our job or we lose the election, I mean, that's not going to be attractive to unbelievers at all. They're going to say, that's what I always thought. You guys are just as pessimistic, just as judgmental, just as bitter as we are. So why should I listen to your message at all? So there is a part of being on mission and as you go and God having authority everywhere, part of that is you're showing people what God is like. Because listen, if, you're, if your life is no different, no, there's no contrast, you're not building up any capital. They're not going to be curious about what your beliefs are. And there's a really good example of this. I have a good friend. He was here last week. His name's Jamie Vance. And he is the manager of two Chick-fil-A's. One in Deland and one in Orange City. And he is, a, is, is an incredible Christian, incredibly kind. He helps us serve this high school faculty lunch twice a year and pays for half the food. Um, and I really love Jamie. And he's one of the most humble men I've ever met. And every single person that works at his store knows he is a Christian. He believes that Jesus is his only hope. They all know that. He shared that with them. So one day, I'm driving through the drive-thru at Chick-fil-A, and I see somebody with plastic... Uh, rubber gloves on and they're digging through garbage and I'm thinking what in the world is that person doing and I look and they stand up and it's Jamie it's Jamie Vance he's the manager of this Chick-fil-a and I kid you not he had a dumpster open a ladder to get up in there and there's garbage everywhere and he's shoveling through this garbage and I'm in the drive-thru and I'm scratching my head thinking now this guy could appoint like 50 other people to do that why in the world is he out there doing it I said hey Jamie and he said Tommy what are you doing? I said, getting some food. And I said, what are you doing, man? He said, ah, ah, nothing. He said, I'm just trying to find something. I said, did you lose something? He said, ah, he was trying to play it all. He's a humble guy. And I said, Jamie, what's going on? He said, well, a mom came up to the register and said that her son had some really expensive retainers and he had laid them on one of the serving platters at Chick-fil-A and it got thrown away accidentally. And she asked me if I could help. And so I'm just trying to do the best I can. Now I want to ask you a question. Okay. Seriously. Think of your life like this. What do you think that that mom and her son think about Chick-fil-A and about Jamie Vance? Probably pretty impressed, right? But listen, 
they may not have a clue who Jamie is and that he's a Christian, that his hope is in Jesus. And so that enables him to do what many people would consider to be menial tasks that are beneath them, right? She might not have a clue. But I can tell you this. I can tell you who will be the most impacted by that. Who is it? It's the employees. It's the employees. Because they know all of them should be out there doing it, right? But this manager, their employer, their boss, the guy that signs the checks... He's out there doing it instead, and they all know why. They all know that Jamie does not consider a task like that to be beneath him. Why? Because this is my father's world, and he has all authority, even over the dumpsters and the mundane, menial, disgusting tasks like this. And he's going to do it with a song in his heart because Christ has saved him to that hope. And I want to tell you right now, when one of those employees has an issue, has a problem, I can tell you one of the first people that they're going to go to and bring it to, and that's Jamie Vance. And I believe that's a great illustration of how viewing all of your life as a mission matters for disciple making. It does, guys. It does. And it's the same. What, so what, what could your story be? What could your story be where you're at? Some of you are employees. Some of you are employers. Some of you get the short end of the stick at your job. And you have every right to be bitter from a worldly standpoint. So how are you going to react to show that, hey, this is what God is like. This is what God has done. And this is why it matters. Then we're in business. Then we're talking about mission. Then we're talking about opportunities to verbally speak about the goodness of God and the sacrifice that Christ made. And those things, that gives color to those things. If you're just holding a sign and look, we talked about this at our home group. We had one of the best home group conversations we've ever had, I think, last week. I hope you're in a home group where you can talk about these things and have robust uh, discussions about them. We talked about there's a lot of people in the land that hold signs on Friday nights. And I'm there some of the times when they do, and I think it takes a lot of courage and probably a lot of faith to do that. But is that the best way? Is that the best way to make disciples? We talked about that in our home group. And no, I'm not going to tell you what we said. You can have that discussion in your home group. Can you find that in the Bible? I'll ask you that. And, and what is the reaction of people that are there, that are getting yelled at, with people carrying signs that say Jesus on them and bullhorns? It does take a lot of courage to do that, and in some cases there may be a place for it. Um, but I can tell you I meet a lot of people, and when I tell them that I'm a Christian, one of the first things they mention is, oh yeah, yeah, I've met you guys on down it, and I'm like, no, 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 that's, that's, you know, there's some people that do that, and I don't, I don't ever try to be critical of them when I'm talking to unbelievers. I say, but that's not our church. That's another, that's another church. So that's neither here nor there. So next point, okay? Myth number two. And the first one was the longest, I, pro I promise. We're finishing. These are going to be so fast, I could probably preach another sermon on them, and maybe I'll do that. Second myth, disciple-making is for the elite. For the elite. Do you see what it says here in this text? Check this out. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some... Doubted. You see that verse 17? Some doubted. See, we tend to view the strategic evangelists, disciple makers of the world as this spiritually elite group of people. They're trained. They're on the payroll of the church. They're up here speaking. They're the ones. It's the prophets and the priests and the pastors and the bishops and the elders. They're the ones. It's the specially trained missionaries that we send and that we give financial resources to. They're the ones that God has called. But friends, that's not the case. Not at all. No, you, I would say this, you are the tip of the gospel spear. Spear, S-P-E-A-R. You're the sharpest point of the gospel spear that God is thrusting out into the world to redeem men and women for his namesake. These men vacillated, they doubted. And, and listen, what's part of this commandment? Make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And part of the commandment that he gave to them was to go. So this is not just for apostles and uh, super elite spiritual people. This is, for, this is for any and every disciple. That's part of being trained. There is no spiritual elite group. Uh, J.D. Greer said this, We think of missionaries as God's super servants, but the word missionary is never used in the Bible, not even once. Does that blow your mind? Not even once. That's because all of God's people are sent. All of God's people are commanded to go. But listen, you'll find that myth in a lot of churches. A lot of churches. This is how a lot of people think of missionaries. That's a Navy, group of Navy SEALs. But actually, next slide, this is who the missionaries are. It's people that are called to every sphere of life. You know, there, there's no closed off places. There's no secular versus sacred. You know, that's one of the things that Martin Luther, the great reformer, just blew, just blew out of the water. All the church people up to that time had said they're sacred. There's monks, there's priests, there's bishops, there's popes, and then there's secular. You know, you can be an administrator. I'm sorry, I wish you could do more for the kingdom. No, no, no. There's no sacred and secular. There's just on mission. We're all called to be on mission. All of us are. There's no exceptions to that. And what does it take to be on mission? Well, God has called us his witnesses, right? When you are called to be an expert, or excuse me, when you're called to be a witness, forget the expert, that defeats my purpose. When you're called to be a witness in court, do you know what they're going to ask you after you swear on the Bible? They're going to say, what did you see? What did you hear? And what did you feel? That's what a witness is. So if you want to know whether or not you're qualified to be one of God's witnesses, I would say this. If you have saw, if you have heard, and if you have felt the transforming power of the Lord Jesus Christ through his transforming gospel, then you're a witness. And we remind ourselves that at the end of every single service. You are a witness. You have been sent. So here's the third thing. Disciple making is a solo effort. A lot of people think that you can make disciples all by yourself. Maybe you don't even need the church. I'm going to go out there. I'm gifted. I'm elite. But did you know that every single command in here, you, don't, you can't see this in English, but in Greek, there is a way to make the word you singular or plural. And all of these instructions in here are plural. They're given not only to the disciples, but to the church. They are all given to the church, all of them. Because listen, we need everybody in this church to fulfill this commandment. Everybody in this church has a gift. Some of you have the gift of hospitality. Some of you have the gift of generosity. Some of you really have an extraordinary gift of evangelism. Some of you have the gift of counseling. And when we bring somebody finally into the church, that's not the beginning of the discipleship process. We've already started that, okay? But that's where uh, the work continues to be hospitable to them, for, for them to get counseling, for them to get mentored, for somebody to help them out if they're in a tight spot by being radically generous, for them to connect their serving gifts to needs in the body. It takes an entire church. And, you know, there's, there's a story from last July in Florida that really illustrates this. In Panama City Beach, something really incredible happened, and a family avoided a disaster. There was a lady, Roberta Ursery, and her family were enjoying a Saturday at the beach when she noticed... Her 8- and 11-year-old sons were both missing. So she looked around, startled. She heard them scream and saw the ocean carrying them out in a riptide. And they were being swept out to the sea. So she screamed. She cried. They called the paramedics. They called the police. They called the lifeguards. The family, against the advice of bystanders, dove in and tried to swim out to her boys. And they even got uh, a couple that jumped in and helped them. And so now this got really bad fast. 
Nine people are stranded in a rip current, being carried out to the sea, and everybody is helplessly standing by watching. There's nothing they can do. Even a policeman got there, and he dove in and swam out and realized these waves are overpowering me. I can't do it. So he swam back. So everybody's waiting on this boat to get discharged, to go and get them. And all the while, especially the older person that's out there, she's sinking. They know they're all going to drown. And that's when a girl named Jessica took matters into her own hands. And she said, I remember thinking, these people are not going to drown today. No, not here. Not while there's hundreds of people right here that could help them. And you remember this? You remember what she did? Put the picture up here. Do we have it? She rallied everybody on that beach. There were 80 people that she got to form a human chain. This was an incredible thing to read about. They linked arms and they stretched out into the ocean, even through the rip current, 80 people long. And they reached those boys and were able to pass them down the line to safety on the beach. And nobody lost their life, not one person. Happened in Panama City Beach, July 2017, an incredible story. And did you know this? Some of those people that were in that chain couldn't swim. They couldn't swim, but they said, you know what? Dadgummit, I can't swim, but I can hold on to somebody else's arm and make this chain extend longer so that we can get out there to them. And I think, what a beautiful illustration of what disciple-making and evangelism is. Because, listen, it takes the entire church to do it. There are no lone rangers in this. We are all together called to live on this mission together. And we need one another. We need one another. Our home groups ought to be praying for the people that the tip of your gospel spear is hitting at your job, at your calling, at home. When your children, uh, you're seeing just resistance to the gospel, you ought to call and rally together people to pray for them. We need the entire church to successfully live on this mission. And that's really what this passage is all about. Um, The three myths is that, number one, it's an event. It's not. It's a lifestyle. It's an entire way to view your life. Number two um, is that it's a solo event. Um, that you don't need other people, and that's a myth. You do. And the third thing is that it's this elite group of people that's been called to do it. And that's not true, guys. All of us are called to be on mission together for Christ. So I hope that that encourages you. And we're going to talk about, okay, when it gets to the point where you're ready to share your hope in Christ, what does that conversation look like? Because that scares people to death. We're going to talk about that. Because listen, my job is to, is to help equip you to do this. I want to do that well, and I want to do it better.